at John chapter 19, John 19. <coughs> and just to remind us, since it's been just a minute, we're at the point of the book where Jesus is going back and forth to various leaders. He has been sent to Herod. Herod has sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate has tried to dispense with dealing with Jesus once before. That was unsuccessful. So now he's going to try again through a different method, ironic method, having Jesus punished severely. And then the idea here would be that once the Jews see how severely he's been harmed, they would feel compassion and then send him away. But it has quite the opposite effect. As we work through this passage tonight, I actually only have one point. It's kind of like the previous text, how it weaves in and out of everything that we'll see. So I just want to give you the main idea straight up front, and then we'll work our way through it. The way I would describe this is that this snapshot of the journey of Jesus is filled with tragedy, irony, symbolism, sovereignty, and love. And you begin to see that right here as early as verse 1. Look at it. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Your translation may say scourged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now this flogging that is described here is a horribly cruel act. Many died from it. Ancient authorities as diverse as Eusebius, Josephus, and Cicero all relate that scourging normally meant a flaying to the bone. Eusebius tells of martyrs that were torn literally piece by piece down to the deep-seated veins and arteries of their bodies so that the hidden contents of their bodies and organs were exposed to the outside world. It was often conducted by an instrument with a short handle that had leather straps attached to it, and at the end of those were bearings of some kind or bits of bone or pieces of metal or so on, little chunks of things that were intended to tear parts of the body and skin away from the victim. And again, somehow Pilate thought that if we do this and they see this, they're going to have a change of heart and I can get away from Jesus. But that wasn't all that happened here. It also says that there was a crown of thorns that was twisted together. This would have been made by long spikes, a plant that would have been available there of some kind. And it would have been in line with the type of crown that an oriental king would have worn. And the idea here was to mock him that the thought of him being the king, okay, you say you're the king, Let's give you a crown, and then we also find out from the other Gospels that they would have taken a stick of some kind or a scepter that they gave to Jesus and beaten this crown into his head. Now, if you're like me, even hearing these things is difficult to think of the physical pain, unlike anything any of us would have endured, the emotional pain, the humiliation of likely being stripped naked while all these things were happening in front of a huge crowd of people. But yet in the midst of all this, there is quite profound symbolism working itself out. When it comes to the flogging, this fulfills the type of scripture that we see 
over in the Old Testament when it talks about Jesus having his face marred to the point that no one could recognize him. You see that in Isaiah, and you also see that uh, in Psalm 22 when David talks about the fact that you could count his bones. They stare and they gloat at me. This is fulfillment of prophecy, even down to the type of treatment that Jesus was enduring at this time. But then you think about the symbolism of the thorns themselves. Most of us may not think much about this, but even that is very consequential. You remember back in the book of Genesis when the fall takes place and part of the curse of the fall was what? That there would be thorns on the earth that work which existed before the fall, would now become difficult as a result of the fall. And part of the difficulty of farming the land is those thorns. And so here Jesus takes on a crown of thorns, certainly in line with what we know from back then. That extends to the fact that he is also given a purple robe. This was also a gruesome mockery. Purple was the color of royalty at that time, and most scholars seem to think that this was some kind of military cloak that perhaps started as red, but it was so worn that now it had turned a type of purple, and so they put this around Jesus. And then, of course, they do give him this reed scepter that Matthew and Mark tell us about. And then on top of that, as if that weren't enough, they strike him with their hands, literally just walk up jesus in the face all the while saying and mocking him with the phrase hail king of the jews so it is a significant picture that john paints for us here then verse 4 Pilate went out again and he said to them see i am bringing out to bringing him out to you so that you may know that i find no guilt in him so he's trying to absolve himself from responsibility here so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. And so the picture here that John is painting is a lot of this torture of Jesus, if you want to think of it that way, was taking place off stage, And now he's been brought downstage so that everyone can see. And this phrase that he uses here, behold the man, can be taken to under, be understood like what you see in uh, Greek classical examples to be translated as the poor man or the poor creature. And what Pilate seems to be saying here, there's a little debate about this, whether or not there's some sarcasm in this or not, but, but the language speaks for itself. That he's essentially saying, look at this poor, bruised, bleeding creature. Have, we not, have you not hounded him enough? Behold the man. And what's so sad about this is that Pilate would have had the ability to turn Jesus loose at this point, but of course he does not, and the passage will explain why in just a moment. But let's go back to that phrase, behold the man. Because just like we saw two weeks ago, Pilate is saying more than he even realizes. Because is that not exactly what God says to us about the Lord Jesus. Behold the man. Behold the man that has come as the second Adam to right all of Adam's wrongs. 
behold the man who is the true and better Israel to make up for and succeed where Israel could not. Behold the man who lived a perfect life, died a substitute's death, and would soon gloriously rise to secure redemption for us. Behold the man of God, Jesus Christ. And I think this provides an opportunity for us to, to just stop and experience what Jared Wilson and others might call a moment of gospel astonishment. That God, in his kindness, says to us through this passage, Behold the man. The man who succeeded where we failed. The man who offers us love and mercy when we certainly don't deserve it. The man that we can go to with any and all of our problems and foibles and discouragements and stresses of this life and get real help. So this passage says to us tonight, behold the man of God. Now when they were confronted with this man, They did that which was exactly wrong. But the question for us tonight is what will we do when we are entreated to behold him? Will we glorify Jesus? Will we feel the intense gratitude that this passage should engender within us? Will we accept his love and mercy? Or will we walk the path that they walked? right here in verse 6 and following. Look at this. It says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, so these are all the people that have delivered Jesus over to Pilate, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, there's several things going on right here in these three verses. The first one, in verse 6, the pronouns that are used, you and him have an emphatic force within them, showing Pilate's disgust and indignation at the Jews for their callousness toward Jesus. Now, let's get it straight. Pilate was not a good guy. In fact, he was a very bad guy. But here is this very bad guy looking at even worse guys and saying, seriously, at this point, is this not enough? And if it's not, then you deal with it. So yet again, throughout this passage, Pilate is a complicated and somewhat tragic figure. He's completely culpable for what he's doing. But he is clearly almost a puppet at the hands of the mob. The lack of fortitude to do the right thing only adds to the tragedy of this situation. This law that they're referring to here is likely Leviticus 24, 16, who says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And they are trying to use this to point him in the direction of doing what they cannot do. Verse 8, when he talks about being afraid, this one is particularly interesting as well because as we've discussed, his, his wife Claudia had had a dream about Jesus basically saying you don't need to have anything to do with this guy. 
And then he's had all these interactions with Jesus where even he, in his darkened state, can tell something is different about this man. The other Gospels point this out, the way Jesus uses silence throughout this passage. John doesn't say much about it, but Jesus controls the conversation by what he doesn't say as much as by what he does say. And so Pilate knew something was different, and he likely thought that he had just whipped and tortured a man who in his mind could now call down a curse or some kind of vengeance upon him. So he was afraid, and it made good sense for him to be afraid. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again, so there's this back and forth that we've seen throughout this passage. Things happening off stage. He goes out, he takes Jesus out, they stand in front of the people, so on and so forth. But now this appears to be backstage again. He entered his headquarters and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And I think the way to understand that is in light of verse 8. That he understands there's some kind of something happening with Jesus and he just didn't come from the farm down the road. He is a different type of man. Which gets us to verse 10 when Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? And look at the irony in this. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, let's work backwards on this. I, I think he's, he's obviously speaking here about likely Caiaphas, could be Judas, but I think probably Caiaphas and the, the, the chief, pri <coughs> chief priests that have put him in such a, a situation here. And he's saying they're going to be even worse off than you in judgment. But this notion here that he says what he says about authority is incredibly significant. That he only has the ability to do what God has allowed him to do. Through his sovereign hand, as he allowed this power has come to be. And there really is this interplay that I mentioned before, but let me point it out here again, of human culpability on the part of Pilate, but he is fulfilling divine prophecy. It's very similar to what we saw with Judas. Judas is 100% responsible for what he did, but yet it worked out the ultimate will of God. A lot of similarity here with what Pilate was doing. And I found uh, this quote from one of my commentators this week that I, I thought was very helpful in how to make good gospel use of what we're talking about here. I'll just read it. It says this, I find great hope in Jesus' final response to Pilate, verses 9 through 11. All human authority is granted by God. Pilate has no authority over this event, the trial, the crucifixion, unless God hands it to him. And in this moment, we see the superiority of Jesus' kingdom. The king of the Jews is about to die, but his kingdom will not be shaken. In human kingdoms, if you take out the king, you create turmoil, and the kingdom becomes vulnerable to attack. But Jesus' kingdom is not in danger of being overthrown. He is sovereign over the proceedings. His death will not make his kingdom more vulnerable. It makes his kingdom victorious. So even here, 
on the home stretch of his life, and we'll see this again next week and in the weeks to come, when it seems the most out of control, the most off the rails, Jesus is still in as much control as he was when he was healing the sick and raising the dead. And friends, that kind of authority, that needs to help us. That needs to help us on Monday when we get up and we don't want to go to work. It needs to help you on Thursday afternoon when you get a phone call that you don't know what to do with. It needs to help you in all of the different things that you encounter when you just aren't sure which way to turn. You need to know that your God is still in control and passages like this remind us of it time and time again. But that's not all. Look back at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now let me just say, this may not seem like a big deal on the service, but this is devious. This is an insidious way that they are trying to manipulate him, which they succeed, by the way, to get him to do what they wanted him to do. To do and they know which buttons to push and just how to go at this guy Pilate was known as a friend of Caesar but these people also knew that Caesar was a paranoid recluse he lived on the island of Capri and he responded savagely to any hint of unfaithfulness so in a modern term you think about a guy like Putin this would be like that but worse and so they come straight at him and they say, if you don't do what we want, then we're going to make sure that he knows how this works. We're going to make sure that there is a pall of concern that is cast upon your public servants. We're going to make sure that there is some question about where you stand in regard to Caesar. And I think at a minimum that would, meant that he, uh, that would mean that he would lose his power and most likely, it would mean that he would lose his life in some painful exit. And so he is now hemmed in in a very hard place, a very hard place, which makes this even more sad, the moral failure on top of the leadership failure. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Payment Pavement. And in the Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Now, hang on one second just to understand the judgment seat here. Let's think about the irony of this. Here sits a very flawed man judging the man in a place called basically the judgment seat with the authority that that man had given him by divine design. And this man is using that authority for evil instead of good. I mean, the Bible is a spiritual text, but this is powerful literature. If we were making a movie of this, don't think that this would not be of significance. But that's not all that we see right here in this section as well, because it says 
It was the day of the pre uh, preparation of the Passover, and watch this. It was about the sixth hour. That is not a throwaway detail. Because what John is saying here is he is saying that Jesus was being sent to the execution at about the same time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in preparation for the Passover. So here comes Jesus on exactly the right day at exactly the right time to fulfill all of this imagery showing who he was. Friends, this is significant that we now have the Lamb of God being offered at the same time when these other lambs were offered. So time after time after time, example after example after example, Jesus is still in control. But then you see verse, the rest of verse 14 that continues to show this. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. And I think that last little exchange there of him asking them one last time and then the way that they answer, it shows truly how hard their hearts were toward God and how far they were from God. Because it's pretty clear God's not their king. Even if they thought Jesus was somebody else, their only king is Caesar, it seems. What a sad further example of the depravity on display in this passage. So let's talk a little bit about how to apply what we've learned here. I want to give us three different ways. One of them I've already referred to, but I want to say a little bit more about it. First one is to be helped by God's sovereignty on display. And I think the way that hits me, even though we've seen it, feels like two or three times up to this point, we'll see it two or three more times before we get to the end of the gospel. The fact that it comes up so often, that in and of itself says something to us. One of the principles of, of solid Bible interpretation, uh, interpretation is repetition. And if you see something repeated in a text, in a, in a book, in a section of the Bible, it is there to show and highlight the importance of whatever is being said. And so this idea here of God's sovereignty, even when it looks awful, is a very, very important and a very useful, and I think going forward could be a very, very important truth for us as Christians. Because I'm not sure what's going to happen this year. I'm not sure what's going to happen next year. I'm not sure what's going to happen in 10 years. But my guess is as the world continues to rock and reel and further disintegrate in some way, it's going to be more important for us to remind ourselves that God is in control than it ever has been. It's kind of easy to forget that we need to trust in God when everything is roses and rainbows and there's revivals and people being converted in mass numbers and, and the country seems to be going in the right direction. It, it's easy to not have to remind yourself of a bedrock truth like this. 
But it's in those days that we need to remind ourselves theologically that it will not always be that way. And we need to trust that God is just in control on the bad days as he is on the good days. And the reason why I, I talk about this regularly, I mentioned this two weeks ago, but let me come at it from a different angle, is that our feelings push against this truth. Now, I'm not a person that would ever tell you, hey, don't feel your feelings and suppress them. And like, that's not going to help you. That's just going to make you worse off. But what I am saying is, if your primary hermeneutical device is your feelings, you're going to end up with some bad theology. Because there are some days you are going to feel very saved. And you're going to feel very excited about Jesus and the Bible and all things spiritual. And there's going to be other days that you just aren't. It could be the weather on a day like today. It could be hormones. It could literally be something you ate. But that doesn't change objective truth. And so coming back to these fundamental truths that God is in charge over and over and over and over is really important because there's going to be some days when you just don't believe him. There's going to be some days that you're going to look at your situation, like I have a few times in my life, and been like, how in the world can God be in control when all of this is on fire, when all of this is falling down? I have had those days earlier in my life when I've wondered about things. But that's the thing about objective truth. It's true in and of itself, and how I feel about it or not, that's not what makes it true. What makes it true is that that's what God has revealed. And even though this passage is clearly and ultimately about Jesus at the end of his life, it's not a parable by any means. It's about what it's about, but it's almost parabolic. In the sense of, there are times when life goes like this, and God is still in control, and God is still on the throne, and God is still working out his plan, even when it looks like this. So, tell yourself this truth, lay hold of this truth, anchor yourself to this truth, teach this truth to your children, to your grandchildren, and it will help you when life goes this way. Second thing, be helped by God's symbolism on display. Now, I pointed this out, but it's so important, I just want to reference it just a couple times. If, if you flip back through this passage, and hopefully you'll do this, particularly in community group, and you think about the specific things that happen, this flogging, this scourging that reveals Jesus' bones, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, the striking to the face, which fulfills Isaiah 52. It shows us the continuity and the connectivity of the Bible. And this is really important because, sadly, a lot of people don't read the Bible this way. They approach it almost like a medicine cabinet. Hey, I got something going on. I'm going to open it up. I need a verse to deal with this. 
And, and that's helpful. I mean, we do need specific verses. But the Bible is not just a collection of specific verses. It's one story. Four movements. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And if you read the Bible in the verses and in the story, you're going to get way more out of it and you are going to be amazed. I've been studying the Bible for 40-some years now. Parents started me early, thankfully. And every time I sit down and look at it, there's something that I'm like, oh, man, look at that. And part of that is because of how I try to read it. So if you want to be drawn to the Bible more, one of the things I would commend to you is try to read it this way. Use those footnotes. Use those cross-references. Use those study Bibles to show you the connections that you might not see otherwise if you just surface read the text. It will revolutionize the way that you read the scriptures, and part of what's going to come out of that is your view of God is going to get bigger because you're going to look at this and you're going to go, man, this stuff that happened in Isaiah was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came along, and look, it's, it's the exact thing that was prophesied. There's no way you can read that and your, your God be small. He just gets bigger. On top of that, as you face problems in life, connecting this point to the previous one, you're going to see that your big God is able to handle your big problems. And then that kind of gets me to the final thing that we're talking about here, of being helped by God's love on display. I mean, you can't read this passage. And behold the man and not feel the love of God. Because Jesus didn't just endure these things simply to secure redemption for his people, which he did. There's an element of love here. That Jesus did this because he loves us. And he doesn't just love us in some cosmic way that is disconnected from who you are. He loves you. He loves you. And all your fa failures and all your triumphs and everything in between, he loves you. And so there's a very real palpable sense that Jesus was scourged because he loved you. Jesus was Hit in the face until he couldn't open his eyes and they were swelled shut because he loves you. That is the degree to which we have been loved by God. And friends, that will help. That will help you when you have sinned again because it will happen. And you wonder, how in the world am I ever going to get out of that? You're going to get out of it because God loves you. You're going to grow and you're going to keep failing forward because God loves you. And look at the extent that he went to secure redemption for you. Oh, friends, let that melt your heart. Let that help you along. And as we get into the next passage next week and the next couple of weeks, let's keep circling back to that. The love of God on display on top of the symbolism of God and the sovereignty of God.
Friends, the gospel and all that's wrapped up in it is like a dime. We turn it and turn it and turn it. And every time we turn it, we see more facets of it. We see more of the beauty of it. We see more of the providential ability to get it to us. We see more of the divine design. And we see more of the life-changing help that it offers. So as we close tonight, let me ask this one singular question. What is it, maybe there's several things, that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing to you in this passage? Is it this stark reminder of the love of God? Is, this in, is it an invitation into the depth of Scripture? Is it this reminder of this bedrock truth that we need time and time again? Friends, whatever it is, let's be open and available to what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Let's go to Him now. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful for this passage and passages like it. Lord, we could hear these truths every week, every day, and it still wouldn't be enough. But Lord, we thank you for these Sundays when we get together and for a period of time we focus intently on the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so Lord, I pray that in these moments you would speak to us, that you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you'd shape us, that you'd change us, and that you would do all these things for the sake of your name. In Jesus' mighty name.